We have a special treat for you this morning. Some of you know him from being on staff here for several years. Would you please welcome Aaron Hale? He's going to be bringing us the word this morning. Sorry. <laughs> Not without my I just wanted the microphone. Just <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Made that handoff awkward. Good morning. It's great to be here with you today. I hope you're doing well. It's uh, always a blessing to come and visit. Pastor Ed reached out a few weeks back and asked if I could come and, um, and share in the word this morning. And of course, I'm always happy to do that. My wife and I, Johanna, uh, came out this weekend and got a guest teacher back at Calvary Chapel Foothill Ranch in Lake Forest where uh, I lead a church there. And uh, it's just good to be here this morning. Uh, first Sunday of, is it the first Sunday of the new year? Yes, last, last week was the 31st, that's right. Well, I know you've been in the books of, I think, Acts and Luke. I looked at the website and, and saw it looks like we're alternating through there. But I'm going to take us back into the Old Testament, if I could. I hope you don't mind that. We're going to go back to 1 Samuel. And so if you've brought your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 2 or scroll there in your device. It's, it's that season in Israel's uh, life as a nation where the time of the judges is coming to an end and and actually Samuel introduces us to Israel's first king Saul and then of course David who is uh, a, a large part of the focus of of that book well Samuel opens up into a dark time a, a um sort of a disturbing season in Israel's history as a people. Judges certainly was that. And it, it continues forward. And really, we see it manifest in, in problems within the very priesthood itself. Eli, the high priest, he was a relatively good man, uh, but his two sons were very wicked. And to that wickedness, God must respond but as we'll see, he never brings judgment without offering, without first offering mercy. And that mercy, it's going to come in the form of a person, a prophet, Samuel, through whom uh, this child is, is going to come, a word, direction, and, and hope from God. Samuel will be a man who will help to shape Israel's future. And, and today's verses actually look beyond Samuel as a, as a deliverer for a time to that great deliverer, the Messiah him, himself, the embodiment of God's mercy. And so as we look at the second half of 1 Samuel this morning, our message is titled Judgment and Mercy. And as, as my wife and I, we were talking last night, and, and she said, you know, judgment's kind of a heavy topic to, to bring. So I, I'm sorry. We're talking about judgment today. And so if you needed something kind of sobering for the new year, well, you came to the right place. If you're looking for a message on grace, just, you know what, too bad. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. It's judgment and mercy. We're, we're going in both directions, all right? So don't get too upset. But to set the tone for our study we're going to take a moment and explain what we mean by those two terms. I think it's important to get some, some clarity and, and explain ourselves a little bit. While some in the church, and certainly within popular culture, would prefer to frame God as only being uh, 
love, and certainly he is love. Scripture tells us that God is love. At the same time, the Bible reveals his, his character to be far more nuanced and balanced in terms of the inclusion of all of his attributes. While certainly God is love, he is also holy, he's righteous, and he's just. And sometimes we can neglect the reality and the certainty of God's judgment. While, in fact, Scripture tells us, reveals that that, that judgment, that, that, that justice, that aspect of, of who God is, it actually begins with his people. In 1 Peter 4, verse 17, we read, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end? of those who do not obey the gospel of God. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? So we understand that, that part of who our God is is, is reflected in his, his heart to hold us accountable to his holiness. The author of Hebrews continues this thought in speaking of those who reject the witness of the law of God and salvation through Christ's death on the cross. In Hebrews 10 Verse 30 we read, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, I want to, I, I want to add a caveat here to our, our subject of speaking to judgment and mercy, because in the context of God's people, you and I, those who are Christ followers, we're not under God's judgment, but we certainly can be under his discipline, can't we? And there is a difference. The one being God's righteous punishment against lawbreakers. That's his judgment. And the other, discipline, being his loving correction of his children. And depending on where you find yourself in relationship to God this morning, you you may be either under or facing at some point one of those two, either judgment or or discipline. God holds his people to a higher standard. Does that mean though that we're to live in fear? afraid of that, afraid of him. Well, yes and no, I think. Uh, we should have a holy and reverential respect and awe for our God who will judge. But how does God deal with the penitent, with the humble? Because you might say, okay, well, I understand God's righteous, he's just, he judges, he disciplines, but, but I'm really sorry for what I did. I, I repented, I asked for forgiveness. Well, that's a good thing. And the New Testament is full of of teaching and truth about God's mercy and his grace towards those who, who stumble but then turn to him and repent. But I love how Psalm 103 captures this. Beginning in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Think about Jesus' approach to people, his ministry that, that we see in, in the Gospels. 
As one evangelist pointed out, it was always law to the proud and grace to the humble. To the self-righteous Pharisees who refused to see their need for a Savior, Jesus was harsh. How did he speak to them? Woe unto you. Yet to the woman caught in the act of adultery, but desperate and broken over her sin, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Our God wants to be merciful. That is his preference. But we must be willing to receive it. Otherwise, we stand to endure his judgment. Today's verses, they record for us a, a, a scenario that I think captures these two realities in tension, these aspects of, of who God is. And, and I, I think it is to us, uh, it should be both a warning and an encouragement. As I mentioned before, the priesthood was in disarray. Those who were tasked with leading God's people in his word and worship were instead taking advantage of them, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He was, they were using the people for their own ends. And as we'll see, that high priest, Eli, their father, he failed to confront the sin in his own family. In fact, he was guilty of neglect. That's a little bit of a theme for us this morning because as we consider God's judgment or discipline in contrast to his mercy, what we find is that sometimes in our lives, we, we are under God's judgment or mercy as a result of neglect. That is neglecting the work God wants to do in our lives, neglecting or ignoring the voice and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, delaying responding to God and his word. Neglect can cost us and others deeply, can't it? Some of us know that from firsthand experience. It can lead to grave consequences, and certainly that, that was the case. It will be, as we'll see in, in this morning's passage for Eli's family. A Robert Wentz, he speaks to this in a story he shares. He writes, we often fail to consider the gradual cumulative effect of sin in our lives. In St. Louis in 1984, an unemployed cleaning woman noticed a few bees buzzing around the attic of her home. Well, since there were only a few, she made no effort to deal with them. And over the summer, the bees continued to fly in and out of the attic while the woman remained unconcerned and unaware of the growing colony of bees just a couple floors above her head. The whole attic became a hive, and the ceiling of the second floor bedroom finally caved in under the weight of the hundreds of pounds of honey and thousands of angry bees. And tragically, she was crushed to death. No, I'm joking. She didn't die. That's not true. But while the woman escaped serious injury, she was unable to repair the damage of her accumulated neglect. Can you relate to that in your life? Accumulated neglect. I'll deal with it later. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a few little problems when in actuality it's growing and God is moving on us and convicting us to respond and to deal with it. The word, the caution, the exhortation is don't delay responding to God. So as we move into today's message, 
Let's ask the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to reveal to us those areas where you and I might be guilty of neglect. Neglecting those things that he's been convicting us of. Areas where we need to take action, but we've failed to. Instead, perhaps even nursing sin and rebellion. Setting ourselves up for either discipline or judgment. Because in actuality, what God wants to extend to you and I is mercy. And that's the good news. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, God, as we make our way through this passage, we're asking that, Lord, you would open our eyes, that you would speak to our hearts, show us those things that you have for us. God, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your law. God, that you would graciously lead us to the place where you want us to be. Lord, that we might stand in your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our first point as we look at verses 20 through through 25 of 1 Samuel 2 is darkness and dereliction. Verse 22, now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. Verse 25, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Oh, that's kind of a bummer. Well, earlier in chapter 2, we learned that Eli's sons, they were guilty of taking whatever they wanted from the people's sacrifices. Some of you know that in the law, God, having designated the tribe of Levi and the sons of Aaron as the priests, well, they were allowed a certain allotment and portion of what the people brought in worship and sacrifice to God. But of course, as the law is, God was very specific about what they could and couldn't have. Some was for uh, the priests for their own sustenance and needs, and some was simply for the Lord uh, to be offered directly to him, to be consumed uh, in fire. Well, so wicked and, and, and having such disregard for the law of God were Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that they took whatever they wanted. And they told the people, if you don't give us what we want of the sacrifice, I don't want the part God's law says I should have. I want that part of the meat. That's, that's the part I like better, with, with more fat on it. It looks, it looks better. And if you don't give it to me, I'll take it by force. Can you imagine? Hey, Pastor Bob up here a minute ago, you know, the gracious, got agape boxes if you feel led to give to the work of the... Imagine if Bob got up here and he's sweating and, you know, getting excited and you better... I heard a story one time of an <laughs> offering call at a church. Never mind. I'm not going to get into that. Okay. Basically, oh yeah, he's going to do it anyway. The doors were closed. The ushers stood at the back after the first offering and, and they said, you know, essentially, we counted it. It's not enough. Nobody's leaving till we move it up. The number, can you imagine if that, if it, we're going to try it this morning just for, no, I'm joking. So blatant, selfish, and ungodly was their abuse of worship that Samuel records, therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. People, they hated coming to worship because of Eli, or excuse me, because of Hophni and Phinehas. You better believe God and his spirit were grieved and angered over this. 
They didn't know the Lord. Verse 12 of 1 Samuel 2 says that they were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. Now, verse 22 tells us that Eli, he was very old, and word had reached him that his sons were taking advantage of the people through worship, but it was even worse than that. We just read a moment ago. Not only that, but, but they were engaging in sexual immorality with the women who came and volunteered at the tabernacle, probably helping watch the kids of the people that came to worship, maybe the children of the priests, uh, helping and serving in other ways. So th- their sin, it was, it was broad, it was deep, and, and it was offensive in, in the most horrific ways. Those that they were called to minister to, instead, they were using this place that God had set apart for, for worship was deteriorating into, into something that looked more like a pagan temple. And Eli himself was grieved as well. Well, verse 23 tells us, uh, Eli, he says to his sons, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear you. Make the Lord's people transgress. Eli, he confronts his sons, but nothing more. He lacks the resolve to actually do anything about it, to hold them accountable. He is derelict in his duties as high priest and as father to his sons. It gives us some insight probably into how he parented, why they had turned out the way that they had. He was lax. He was unwilling to discipline. Empty warnings, hand-wringing had done nothing to correct these two. Eli, he acknowledges the the seriousness of their sin, but not to the extent that he's compelled to take action. And how important it is, how important it is that parents not only tell children the right and point out wrong, but follow up with meaningful discipline. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, but the Bible does speak to that um, extensively, parenting and uh, issues related But rather than demand change or justice or call on the people to drive these two out as he should have, Eli, he laments, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. Man, I would not want to be in that place where God would say that of of me. I'm sure you wouldn't either. That God just, he wants to judge you because of your hardness of heart, because of your your wickedness. But interestingly enough, God worked through Eli's weakness. Judgment, again, was accumulating, and they'd crossed a line that God would severely correct. And in this case, there would be none to advocate for them. These who had opportunity, remember, to repent for years. They... They had forsaken the path of mercy in favor of the self-life indulgence and iniquity. And for that, they're, they're going to be judged. What had been pleasurable for a season, as is always the case with sin, it would cost them far more than, than they'd ever imagined or intended. Someone once said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you It will cost you far more than you ever intended to pay. We need to take care that we're not neglecting some area that God is trying to free us from. Least we find ourselves under his judgment, his discipline, not to mention facing the natural consequences which are inevitable from our sin. 
We need to be careful of that. Now, miraculously, despite this evil rebellion and sin, God was preserving a remnant, as he does. A means of deliverance, a voice of reason and hope, a prophet. He always does that. Think if you were in Israel at this time in, in their history. You've just come out of the time of the Judges. I don't know if you've been through Judges lately, but that is, that is, a, that is a depressing book. <laughs> like you, you, I mean, there's, there's high points for sure, but you read through that and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, this needs like a warning on the front of it, and, and it's just a little bit overwhelming. The depth of depravity, it's, it's spoken of how essentially they just keep going in these spiral uh, descending what am I trying to say? It kind of feels like a toilet, doesn't it? I'm sorry. That's a little too graphic. But, and then God would raise up a judge, and, and they would sort of, you know, move forward a little bit, and then they'd go backwards. Well, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, that, that darkness is persisting, and the people, many of them, they even hated to go and worship God because of Eli's sons. It was a terrible time, and I'll just bet nobody was looking for God to do a fresh work. Certainly nobody was, was looking for a, a child as the answer. Maybe they're all just looking at Eli. Maybe, maybe who knows what. Maybe they're just fed up with everything. But our next point this morning, verse 26, is heartache and hope. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. In the midst of this horrible darkness that seemingly had overtaken the kingdom of God, we find light. This child is that one born of Hannah. She and her husband Elkanah had prayed desperately for a son and were finally granted one, after which his mother uh, Hannah had committed and surrendered his life to God in service to him and for his glory. And if you've, if you've not read chapter one in a while, go back and read that. It's a blessing to see her heart and trust in the Lord. But, but she speaks of how as the Lord had lent Samuel to her, miraculously gave she and her husband a child, she had then dedicated or lent him back in service to God. And so she did, leaving that son Samuel, a little child, in the care of Eli and his two sons. Don't you think Hannah knew what was going, everybody knew what was going on at the tabernacle, and yet she trusted the Lord. This is where mercy comes in, in today's message. God's provision and preparation of this, this young man who will be to Israel a voice of hope and clarity, a light, a, a word of wisdom to her rulers. And again, a light in the way in which God was calling them. This, this dark season into which God uh, punctuates the moment with his, with his presence, with, with a deliverer, with, with deliverance and hope and encouragement, it kind of reminds me of a similar time in the prophet Elijah's life. Do you remember 1 Kings chapter 19? It's actually a low moment that was, that was preceded by a, a high moment, but Elijah was very discouraged. He was being chased by the murderous Jezebel, and, and he felt hopeless and, and alone, and, and he's, he's despairing of his life before the Lord. And in 1 Kings 19, 10, we read, he, he says to God, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Elijah says, God, your program, it's not going very well down here. 
And, and, and you know what? Uh, I'm, I'm your best hope in Israel right now, and I'm ready to check out, so I'm not sure what you're going to do. I, I'm sorry, but you may just want to hang it up here because I think it's over. In these valleys, we're tempted to think that we know how everything's going to turn out. I talk to some people. <laughs> Sometimes we'll encounter, you know, believers who they're so focused on everything that's going wrong and judgment, it's, it's coming. And, and I know, I've read the Bible. Of course it's coming. But, but do we remember that we serve a God who prefers mercy? That, that his patience, his long-suffering is because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that he has no delight in the death of the wicked. Sometimes you talk to Christians who have it reversed, like they think it excites God, like he's up there like Zeus or something, some, some pagan uh, view of God who's just ready to hurl down lightning bolts. That's not his heart. He looks at our world and he weeps. Do you? We tend to get angry. Our, our father's heart breaks so much so that he sent his son for a world that would reject him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, the Lord had to break through to Elijah, and what did he say to him? I have reserved 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. The Lord says, Elijah, just cool your jets, brother. It's going to be okay. I know you're having a rough day, and I'm giving that passage, very, very light and uh, summary treatment, but I hope you understand what we're getting at here. God encouraged Elijah and told him, you're not alone. And I think we need to remember that sometimes in the darkness. We need to recognize that, that we're not alone. God is still working, and he's ever about raising up help and, and hope. And we find here in 1 Samuel that despite the terrible wickedness that had overtaken the priesthood and was harming the nation, God had set about doing the unexpected and raising up Samuel. In the heartache, God is always bringing hope. He's working this way among his people and in the world, often behind the scenes, apart from where we can see it. It's not on the stage. We need to remember that when we're inclined to be given to hopelessness, to think that things are beyond restoration, that God is done. Now, now certainly, he does reach that, that point at times, as I mentioned. I know, I, I've read the end of the book, and I know judgment comes at the end. There's mercy still mixed in with it. And he was done with Eli's sons, but not with his people. His program would still move forward. We read that the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And I'll tell you what, we can read that and forget a couple of things. Do you realize this took place in the context of all the mess that we've just heard about this morning? Wait a minute, you're telling me Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men, with Eli as, as a, a role model and some sort of father figure, and, and Eli and Hophnius running around? How? Sometimes we think, how, are, how am I going to raise kids in this? I shouldn't have any kids. I mentioned this at last night's service. I, I talk to people sometimes, young families or others, and they, oh, I don't want to raise kids in this, in this world. Why not? For goodness sakes, we need, we need young people trained up in the way that they should go, that when they're old, that they would not depart from the Lord. 
And I know some of you are thinking, well, I did everything I could, Pastor, and they're not walking with the Lord. Well, you know what? I think this speaks to that a little bit. Was something wrong in the way Eli parented Hophni and Phinehas? Yes, I think that's possible. But you know what I see in Samuel? I think it's possible that Eli also did some things right, but Eli and Hophni has chose to reject it. Because Samuel very likely was exposed to much of the same positive things that they were in terms of right child rearing and, and, and exposure to the word of God and discipling. They rejected it. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, and that's a frightening thing that, that we can choose our own way. But, but I would encourage you, too, if, you're, if your children are still drawing breath, their story is not done being told. Keep praying. Keep, keep loving them. In Samuel, I think, I think we see not only the sovereignty of God in setting apart a, a young life, a light, a, a hope in the nation, a deliverer in a sense, but we also see God mercifully working through Eli as well. A pastor friend of mine encouraged me along these lines. He and I were talking, a friend out in Orange County, and, and in reference to uh, raising children and, and the challenges that sometimes parents face, he's, he said, don't take too much blame and, and don't take too much credit. I like that. <laughs> Things don't go right. Well, you know, I did the best I could. God's in control, and, you know, they have wicked hearts, right? And, and then if things go well, you know, you don't want to get too prideful about that either. Just like, okay, Lord, somewhere in the middle. Samuel was trained well, but also chose to grow in the way of the Lord. He chose to grab hold of what God was doing in his life. Samuel's path to maturity, it's noteworthy. He, he grew, we read, in three specific ways. They're actually reminiscent of a passage found in Luke's gospel regarding Jesus' life, following his visit with his family to Jerusalem when he uh, was about 12 years old. Luke records in chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and men. Much like Luke Speaks here of Jesus, Samuel grew physically, spiritually, and socially. Now, before we move on, though, consider for a moment where God was raising up hope and light in Israel. It was through a child. Often we expect God to work through the older, through the establishment. And please don't misunderstand me. God works through and uses uh, older people. There's no doubt about it. He uses their wisdom, their gifts. If you're a part of this church and you're older, I hope you're serving and ministering in some way. We need you. But very often, and especially when a new work is in order and needed, God steps outside of the more orthodox and expected means that he does a new work, usually through the young. It's one of the important reasons why we have to be careful about resisting change because that's often the very place through which God is doing a new thing. Many of us talk about a desire to see God bring about revival, but we tend to be fixated. We can be on the past and, and what and how God did it then. But I submit to you that the new thing that God will do is of necessity going to look different. I like this section from the end of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. The Pevensey children, Edmund, Lucy, Susan, and Peter, they've returned from their adventures in Narnia and met their uncle, who they find knows about that magical land. But upon wondering if they will ever return again through the wardrobe, 
as they had several times before, he replies, no, I don't think it will be any good trying to go back through the wardrobe to get those coats which they'd left in Narnia. You won't get into Narnia again by that route. Yes, of course, you'll get back to Narnia again someday. Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. But don't go trying to use the same route twice. God, I think, is in the habit of looking for new wineskins in which to pour out his Holy Spirit. If we're fixated on the past, the ways we've always done it, we just may miss out on that work that he desires to do today. When Israel wasn't listening to God, he raised up a young voice, that of Jeremiah. When the nation was exiled to Babylon, he preserved Daniel and his three young friends to be representatives of Israel and keepers of truth. And when the world needed a savior, he sent his son as a baby born of a virgin in Bethlehem, where God is wanting to do a new thing. He, he very often will bring it about in unexpected means and sometimes through those that we wouldn't anticipate him using, the, the young. Where is God wanting to do a new thing in your life? How might you and I be guilty of resisting change and renewal? Well, back to the situation that was necessitating this fresh work of God. Though Eli's sons were the ones who'd uh, committed these sins of transgressing the law, he, the high priest, had tolerated that, neglecting his responsibility their sin had caused him heartache, but not enough to stir Eli to action. And so God will act. We come now to a word directly from God to Eli and his apostate sons. Verse 27, then a man of God, a prophet, uh, came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? That is in calling the tribe of Levi through the house of Aaron to be priests. Verse 28, did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now, the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. The prophet lays it all out to Eli, the word of the Lord. I, I, I gave to the priesthood the best, is the word to Eli, and yet your sons have profaned my temple by taking whatever they wanted, and you let them. You have honored your sons more than me. Eli, in willful neglect and weakness, had refused to take his sons to task for their sin, and, and he'd stumbled the nation in the process, bringing on his household judgment when God wanted to extend mercy. The tribe and the family of Eva, Levi, it had been afforded great privilege and honor. And in, and in Eli's family, that precious gift and responsibility, it was squandered and, and disgraced and, and disdained. Treated not just lightly, but as nothing. 
And for that sin, the priesthood would be removed from Eli and eventually transferred to another family within the priestly line. Verse 30, but now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. We sometimes imagine that the consequences of our sin will never catch up with us. But the Bible warns otherwise. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's a caution, it's a challenge that we would be careful of that neglect that we've spoken of several times this morning, that, that we would respond where God by his Spirit is convicting us, where his word, the light of his word is showing us that change needs to take place. Now, lastly, we'll, we'll finish up the chapter as we consider verses 31 through 36 and look at the details of this prophetic word and the punishment being directed toward the house of Levi. Suffering and salvation is our final point. Verse 31, Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house and you will see an enemy in my dwelling place despite all the good which God does for Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And the descendants and all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Verse 35 is important. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. The, the judgment pronounced against Eli, it is thorough. He tells him, first of all, your two sons, they're going to die in one day. And if you read ahead to 1 Samuel 4, you see that take place. And in fact, Eli himself dies on the same day. Israel had gone out in battle against the Philistines, and it wasn't going well. And they weren't seeking him. They weren't repenting of their sin. The, the darkness from the tabernacle, really, it had extended out into the life of the nation as a whole. And they couldn't understand why they were losing, so they thought, well, let's pull the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. They treated it like a good luck charm, and God wanted them to know that they were grieving him and, and, and that their refusal to seek him was cause for discipline. And so they lost the battle. Eli and Hophnius were killed, and the Ark was taken by the Philistines. It, it was terrible. Eli's house, this prophet says, to the high priest would, would diminish, that, that longevity would come to an end, that, that eventually his descendants, they would beg the actual priests for handouts. In verse 35, though, we read, after the darkness of judgment and suffering, mercy is spoken of. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. Now, 
This, this small prophetic word, I think, has something of other prophecies in that I believe there's a, a near and a far fulfillment as we talk about sometimes in prophecy. I like to think of it this way. Sometimes you can read a prophetic word, whether it's in, in a book of prophecy or from the, the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. And, and the way things are expressed, it almost sounds like, well, all these events, they're happening in rapid succession. But it's sometimes like we look at, at the San Bernardino Mountains here. It really, it, they almost appear, you know, they appear two-dimensional to us. Like one peak is just right after the other. But we know if you drive up into the mountains to Big Bear or whatever, th these mountains, they're miles apart from each other, though they appear close and that's how prophecy is sometimes. It, it, it sounds like it's all happening like this, but it can be spread out. So I think verse 35, it speaks of deliverance that God was bringing in that time for Israel, but it looks out further to his ultimate expression of mercy through the Messiah. Hebrews 7 makes clear that Jesus became that greater priest who would serve forever. In that time, it would be Samuel and, and, and the priesthood would be restored as it passed from Eli's family. Later, Solomon would raise up Zadok from another family line. But Jesus brings mercy. The mercy that you and I so desperately need where judgment is deserved. In Hebrews 7 verse 25 we read, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This morning, if you find yourself in a place where you need the mercy of God, Know that it's available. That Jesus, he died in your place. That from the cross, he, he cried out, it is finished. Paid in full. What's required of you and I to receive that mercy is that we would humble ourselves, that we would repent, and that we would come to him. That, that our sin might be covered by his blood. That in exchange for our sin and transgression, we might receive his righteousness. Well, to a nation with corrupt leadership, a system of worship that had failed, God sent a deliverer, a voice of hope. He sent mercy in the form of the prophet Samuel. But this, this young priest and prophet looked ahead to God's ultimate answer to the judgment that we deserved, again, in, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. God's righteous Judgment is a serious reality that we all need to face and understand, but not one that we have to live in fear of if we belong to him. We can choose mercy. You can choose mercy today. I'm going to close with a final illustration. Maybe, uh, Robert, if you can come and give us the opportunity to close our time with uh, responding to the Lord with a song of worship. Henry Allen Ironside he tells a story from the early days of expansion into the American West. He writes of pioneers who were making their way across one of the central states to a distant place that had been opened up for homesteading. 
They traveled in covered wagons drawn by oxen, and progress was necessarily slow. One day they were horrified to note a long line of smoke in the west, stretching for miles across the prairie, and soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming toward them rapidly across the horizon. They had crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to return to it before the flames would be upon and would overcome them. One man only seemed to have understanding as to what could be done. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. Then when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back upon it. And as the flames continued to roar forward and toward them from the rest of the west, a little girl cried out in terror, Are you sure we shall not all be burned up? The leader replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. Is that where you're standing this morning? I pray that you are, because that's where our God invites us to be. Outside of our rebellion, our resisting him and the work of his spirit in our lives, and into that place where our Savior has already paid the price. Ironside goes on and writes, what a picture of the believer who is safe in Christ. And he quotes this hymn, on him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. The fires of God's judgment burn themselves out on him and all who are in Christ are safe forever. For they are now standing where the fire has been. It may be that some of us here this morning are guilty of some form of neglecting God's working in our lives, his speaking to us, his convicting. Some area where he's called us to repent, some action that maybe we need to take, reaching out to someone, apologizing, making something right. He's provided a way of escape and the means and the power by which we can rightly serve him and follow his son. He's made a way for mercy that we might escape judgment, but also discipline as his children. Cry out to him today. Fall at the foot of the cross where the blood of Jesus flows, where we find forgiveness and restoration and healing that we might experience his mercy and forgiveness. Stand with me, would you? Father, I pray that you would give us the courage and the faith to trust you, to respond, to say yes to you. And if this morning you're here and you need to respond to the mercy of God, you need to come out away from darkness and walk in the light, you need to repent of neglect, I'd like to pray for you and give you the opportunity just to respond publicly to the Lord. If that's you, would you just raise up your hand? I'll pray for you in a moment. Yes. A fresh experience of God's mercy. If that's you, just raise up your hand. Yes, yes. Father, for these that are saying, yes, I need more mercy, I need more grace, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would minister to them by your spirit. Thank you, God, that, that the, the word that you want to speak over your children is that we would forget those things that are behind and press forward 
to what lies ahead, the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. God, thank you that you remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Lord, that that is your desire, mercy. God, may we receive it, may we walk in it. And I pray for each of us, God, that we would walk in your mercies today. Father, that we would find our feet firmly planted where the fire has already been. God, that we would be strong in your grace and that as we live for you and walk in your ways in this world, Father, that that reality, that hope would overflow from our lives out to those around us. Use us, Lord, as lights of your mercy this day and this week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.